Tackling the legal issues that matter to you in the Okanagan. This is Law Talk with the lawyers of FH&P Lawyers, LLP. Welcome back to our third installment of our um, business talk. Again, I'm Clay Williams, and uh, with me is Tanvir. Greetings, Tanvir. Good afternoon, Clay. You're having a great day? It's busy. Isn't it's it so a busy, busy. Time? Yeah. I mean, as business lawyers, it is nuts right now, yeah. isn't it? Um, as we speak of incorporations, I just got a call from a client purchasing a farm and we need to incorporate by tomorrow morning. Oh, lovely. <laughs> lovely. <laughs> so we need this done ASAP in order to get our agreements in place. So it's it's definitely busy on the real estate front, on the business front. It's it's just insane right now. It's an interesting times, that's for sure. So uh, so last time, what we talked about uh, was these the actors in a corporation, and we talked about the the, the directors and the shareholders and of a corporation, and uh, you know what their their roles were, what they were expected to do. And so this time, I thought we'd drill down a little bit and just talk about how the uh, the directors and what we talked about was the directors are you know the ones that actually do the management of the company and mm-hmm. uh, how they do that and how the the shareholders are supposed to do that too. So. so I'll let you leap in and then and then you jump in after. Um, I was going to say that the usual practice of a company is to entrust the board of directors with the power uh, to manage the company and that's free of any, any interference with the shareholders and that's the usual practice. Uh, the shareholders are usually only left with the power to change the directors at the annual meeting or to remove them by special resolution. So, you know, if the directors are tasked with the um, role of managing the company, how do they do that? What's a director's meeting? Well, you know, the articles that we've got here at FH&P Lawyers uh, allow um, uh, directors' meetings to be called easily, uh, quickly, with very little notice, and uh, done informally, uh, done by telephone, or you can also, we can do it by uh, video conference, as long as the directors can all hear each other and interact. And that's because, you know, in a smaller company, the directors are going to be making these day decisions, you know, and they may be having directors meetings and not even really knowing about it and discussing about how the company's going to be run and that type yeah. of thing. And then in a more uh, structured company, you know, we, they may actually do uh, notices and have directors resolutions and things in writing. And usually yeah. that's when we have managers and, you know, company divisions and things like that. And even for some of our smaller company clients, um, we have to think about the ones that have just one director. And in that case, don't picture a bunch of directors sitting together or on on the phone making decisions where you have one director that single director can have a meeting that's a good point and uh, sometimes when uh, that person's making decisions they're in effect having a meeting aren't they yeah so, yeah and so that's directors and uh, so then it's shareholders now what we talked about with shareholders last time is uh, you know shareholders generally aren't expected to take part in the management of the company but it comes with the benefit of not being liable for anything either, other than their initial investment for the, the amount that they paid for the shares. So, uh, how how do shareholders get to do the limited things they should they can do? And I guess the, we should talk about that. Uh, shareholders don't have a huge role, uh, but they have one role uh, once a year at a, a, a an annual general meeting. Yep. So the Business Corporations Act um, provides that a company has to hold its first annual general meeting not more than 18 months after the day on which the company was recognized. After that, you need to hold the meetings at least once in each calendar year. Um, But 
this can't be more than 15 months after the first annual reference date. Okay, and so what happens at an annual general meeting? You know, usually, uh, frankly, there isn't an annual general meeting. In most of the companies that, that Tanvir and I deal with, um, an annual general meeting is waived, and uh, that can be done by unanimous shareholders' uh, resolution. And, uh, and that brings up an interesting point, because sometimes, I don't know about you, Tanvir, but I'll have people come in and say, well, I want to incorporate, and I want to include my brother and my aunt and all these people as shareholders, and I really caution them against that. Uh, there's really no reason to nowadays, because they need their signature every year in order to, uh, to waive that annual general meeting. So, yeah. Uh, so if, if you can't get everybody's signature waiving it, then uh, you actually have to have an annual general meeting. And uh, yeah. there the financial statements are, uh, are presented to the shareholders and they must be passed and an auditor must be, uh, must be waived. And uh, the, the, you, generally the, the directors uh, resign and new ones are elected. And that's the big power of the shareholders. They get to vote in who's going to be the director and uh, that'll determine the kind of the route or path that the company is going to take. So with respect to a, an annual general meeting, if you've got a company with uh, a number of shareholders and somebody doesn't sign or you decide to have an annual general meeting anyway, there will be a quorum as set out in the, in the articles of the company. Yeah. So I think this is a topic that we can definitely can get more in detail with, um, depending on who our client is, what the company looks like, what the structure is. Um, but in general, it's good to think about it in the sense that it's not always just directors sitting around meeting. It could be in that way, but if not, then we do those consent resolutions to keep business moving, to keep things happening and efficiently you know, have the directors do that day-to-day -day management. You know, that's a good point with respect to the annual general meetings. Uh, sometimes uh, shareholders do have to sign off on on other shareholders' resolutions. Mm -hmm. and we don't necessarily have to do that at a meeting. We can do it by a resolution that's also done in, in writing, as long as it's um, a unanimous shareholders' resolution holding a meeting, right? So, yeah. So that's often the way thing we do things in order to... Uh, you know, move, keep, it keep companies moving along, yeah. right? So, uh, so other than that, um, a company does need to file an annual general report, and uh, so FHMP does act for many companies as the uh, registered and records office. And you know, we send, we prepare the annual report and the the resolutions approving it, and we send it out every 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 year. Yeah. Now, did you want to talk about the transparency registry? Sure. Yeah. So in 2019, we had. Um, uh, Royal Assent for the Business Corporations Amendment Act. And basically what that brought into effect was a transparency register. So now what we need to do with our um, companies, our clients, is to keep record and of significant individuals. And people always ask, what is a significant individual? I know this was mass topic of discussion when we first realized that this was going to come out and sort of how we were going to record this. But so you're considered a significant individual if you directly or indirectly own or indirectly control 25% or more of the issued shares of the company or shares that carry 25% or more of the voting rights of the company. Um, I know this can sound confusing because I was definitely confused when this first came out and there were so many what ifs. Um, and another thing to keep in mind is um, 
You could also meet the criteria of being significant if you have the ability to exercise some type of control over other individuals. So the definition is quite different and we can keep that transparency registry here with our corporate books. We update it um, and there's sort of different rules about the transparency registry too, who we can provide it to, how we release it. So um, it's definitely the newer... Um, registry that's in place and there's also a more recent transparency uh, registry for corporations that own land but again when we have those corporate clients we make note of both of those and keep those updated for our clients yeah and then we've been sending to our clients uh, a reminders to get us that information so that we can prepare those uh, those registries for the landowner transparency act file the uh, the, the report as well. So that's something to keep in mind is that uh, if uh, you as a listener out there um, uh, do have a company, then you've got some obligations. And yeah. uh, so uh, and I think those obligations are, are, are up now, aren't they? Uh, so that for, should be... Yeah, our transparency registry for sure. And so you're probably having, um, if we're not the R&R, somebody else is your R&R, even if it's yourself, you need to be con you need to be recording every significant individual's full name, their date of birth, their last known address, whether they're Canadian citizens or permanent residents, um, a list of each country where they could be citizens. Um, it's, it's quite a long list that you have to keep updated. Yeah, and you've got further requirements if um, you have a company that owns land. So those are, those are pressing things that need to happen right now if you haven't done it yet. Yeah, there's also reporting um, re rules when it comes to companies that own land. So we, as a firm, are also sending notifications to our corporate clients that own property, somebody who's purchased in the last year, that this is coming up and um, they have to also register in the um, transparency uh, report. Yeah, give us a call. We can help you if you need to. Sometimes it can be quite challenging when there's a company that is owned by like a family trust. And yeah. uh, then we've got to examine the trust and, and uh, uh, you know, the obligation is perhaps to look through the trust and uh, get the beneficiaries. And it's quite, a, it can be quite onerous. Yeah. Okay, so what we've talked about to date are, you know, the way that many companies are, are operated, but... You know, there's another thing that we need to talk about, and that's, that's shareholders' agreements. And that can modify the way that a company's operated and kind of set out the expectations of the shareholders. When do you think would be a good, good time to bring up a shareholders' agreement with some people that are looking to incorporate a company? Yeah, so I think for me it depends on the type of client we have in front of us, how many there are in that company, what's going on specifically, and what their business is about. But in general, shareholders agreements are great in the sense that it sort of sets out the dynamics or possibly even changes the dynamics for shareholders of a company from what they would be doing under the law. So um, the overall philosophy, I think, of the shareholders agreement is to create a different balance of rights and obligations for shareholders than what would have been without that shareholders agreement. So like we say, um, in our previous podcast, there's certain things that the shareholders get to do and there's certain things that the directors get to do. But through the shareholders agreements, we can set out sort of more of what the shareholders rights and obligations are. Um, how, how do they deal with certain things like um, share transfers? How do they deal with a certain shareholder wanting to exit the company? And it even gets down to we ask our clients 
very specific details. What are you going to do if one of your shareholders passes away? What are you going to do at mental incapacity? What are you going to do if one of your shareholders uh, is going through bankruptcy? And you, sometimes you can't predict these things or how they'll, they'll impact your business in the moment, but it's good to take that step back and look at it in the future. What's going to happen if one of your shareholders is going through a divorce and possibly a spouse is making a claim over the company? You know, there's all these things that we get our clients to sit down and think about to say, are these things that we can cover off now and get some type of agreement on? And again, it depends on how many, like what does our company look like? How many shareholders do we have? What's the relationship between the shareholders? Because I have some companies where it's just not required. They don't want that. It's, you know, two brothers running a farm. Um, It's not something that they care to have in place. And others, um, like maybe some of your bigger... Husband and wife, often uh, it's not necessary, but... You know, if you've got three buddies that are going to decide to operate a business, now there's one that kind of cries out for a shareholders agreement because of the potential for the two against one. Yeah. And uh, so you're absolutely right. You want to read and, and find out what everybody's expectations are. And, you know, a shareholders agreement is a great opportunity to find out what everybody expects about their involvement in the business. So if you've got three buddies who decide to uh, put together a business detailing cars, well, you know, what is the expectation for yeah. management from each of those? And let's record that now so somebody doesn't say later, hey, you know, I only became involved with you because I thought I was going to be a manager or I thought I was going to be an employee or, you know, and get those, get those out right away. Yeah. And uh, I think you touched on it, uh, but uh, having those uh, dispute mechanism is really important. That's another one. Yeah. Hey, and an agreement on valuation as well. Yeah. You know, the last thing you want is to be fighting in court Mm -hmm. over the, the value of the company or how to, to get rid of a, uh, a shareholder who's no longer, um, happy or in aligned with aligned with the vision of the company yeah so, so you get to say from the get-go do you want to look at fair market value on the shares at that point in time down the road or do you want something different if this comes up yeah because we can agree on it in advance or at least yeah. have a mechanism to get there you know for instance you might have the agree that the company accountant would be the uh, uh, value of those shares rather than going to a full business valuation, which, which could be very expensive, especially to a, a company that's just starting up. Yeah. So we'll take a, we'll have a discussion with our clients based on, um, you know, what is everybody's relative age? How important is a business to each person? And in which way is a business important? What, what role do they want to take? Like you said, what's their respective financial positions? Are they minority shareholders? Are they majority shareholders? Um, and yeah, what is the exact business of the company? What's it doing and what exactly what individuals want to agree on between themselves now? I think one of the, the biggest things too is to control who you're doing business with. So, yeah. um, you know, that's why we provide these options uh, for the other shareholders to purchase a shareholder's um, shares when that shareholder dies. So because, of, you know, the shareholders may not want it to go through the will and the shares be, uh, or through the estate and end up, in fact, doing business with somebody they don't like. Um, there's usually also provisions dealing with things like bankruptcies. Again, the last thing that they may want is having to deal with a stranger in this close closely held company and uh, all of a sudden somebody else shows up. So we kind of think through uh, what might happen down the road and and provide a, um, 
a solution, uh, a pre-agreed solution, which is certainly a lot cheaper than having to deal with it later in the courts. Ideally, we want to avoid having deadlocks between shareholders. So that's that would be a fear of so many clients to say, what if we all disagree? How do we figure it out? Well, shareholders agree. <laughs> and, you know, in some corporations, for instance, like a development corporation, there may be an expectation that the shareholders are going to put in for their money. And so, you know, you want to agree with that in advance as to whether or not there's going to be cash calls and maybe some mm -hmm. controls on those cash calls as well. So, you know, these are the type of things we want to have a, an interview with the people that are, are wanting to incorporate and just find out everybody's role and expectations. And, and let's, get that, uh, let's get that dealt with right away. Mm-hmm. I love that we're doing this podcast to give people information to see sort of, you know, to bring things to mind that they may not have thought about before. But this is such an aerial overview of how everything works. And there's only so much we can say and get across in our podcast. So if you guys have questions or if there's more specific things that you'd like us to cover, please don't hesitate to reach out to either Clay or I. Email us at podcast at fhplawyers.com. For more information on legal issues in the Okanagan, contact FHP Lawyers at 250 762 4222.